one of the things I really want Christians to understand is that the goal of the Christian life is not to make you superhuman. It's to make you truly human. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. On today's episode, we'll talk with Dr. Kelly Capick on the beauty of our limitations. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, such as news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. In today's edition, we'll talk about sports. Sports gambling is on the rise. Everywhere you go, you see advertisements for uh, different ways to bet on sports. Here to discuss with us today is Gabe McGann. Gabe is the Dancer Fellow here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Gabe also works for the North Carolina Baptist State Convention as Executive Assistant for Convention Relations. He and his wife are members and serve at Summit Church in Raleigh. He enjoys good books, drinking great coffee, and being mediocre at golf. Gabe, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for being on today to talk about sports gambling here for our Sports Month emphasis. Uh, Gabe, how have you seen a rise in sports betting recently? Yeah, you mentioned advertisements. One big thing is we see this subtle uh, advertising for sports betting in fantasy football, in different like YouTube channels or podcasts being sponsored by sports betting agencies. Recently, I saw a video from TikTok from a profile called Handshake Bets. Uh, and they were doing over or under 13 and a half holes in a Chick-fil-A fry. And so there are just ways in which uh, sports betting has become super popular, especially in the younger crowd that I've noticed. Why does the issue of sports betting matter to you specifically? On a personal level, um, I've had a lot of friends go down the sports betting path. And uh, what started out as a simple, like once in a while kind of hobby, it became their livelihood. They started to focus solely on that putting away school and classes in order for them to focus on who they bet on, people that they didn't really care about, people that they didn't know uh, but put a bunch of money on. And then I've had like family members also deal with gambling issues, not specifically sports betting, but so much so that a lot of drastic measures had to be taken to get them uh, back on the right path that they weren't just solely focused on betting as a whole. So you've seen this affect your own family then? Yes. Yeah. yeah. My own family too. Yep. It's almost like an extension of fantasy football, but this time there's real money at stake, not just yes. wasted time, but real yeah. money at stake. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. I think people who are already interested in the sport feel like this is another way to get involved and interact with the players, feel more connected. Uh, fantasy football, you have your own team. And now with sports betting, you have your own team that you're putting money on. And I think that adds another level, another layer to how much it shapes and forms who we are as humans. Speaking of that, in what ways do you see sports betting forming humans negatively? Yeah, I think there are a bunch of ways in which humans are formed negatively through sports betting. I think there are four specific ways that I kind of want to talk about. First, the highs that you feel when winning a bet make the lows even greater. And, and there are psychologists who can speak uh, much better than I uh, to this so I don't know all the psych science related to this, but when you win a bet of $5, it, it gives you a dopamine hit 
um, that your, your body's telling you, wow, this is a, a great feeling. And then eventually that kind of wears off. And so you have to do it again. And then eventually it starts to leading to larger bets being placed and a lot greater amounts of money being sent to bet on teams. And so those highs get higher and higher and, and then they start to wear off. But also when you're not betting, you kind of start to feel that need, like this withdrawal almost. Uh, it truly is like an addiction. And that's why a lot of these sports betting ads need to put disclaimers on, hey, this may lead to addiction and, and lead to issues. Uh, another way, I think sports betting, like you said, it's it's a disembodied reality. It's something that you're not actually doing. You're not in the sport, but you're away. You're separated from what's actually going on on the field. So what's happening is not really what's in front of you. You're losing that personal and proximity connection to the, the things that are going on in your own life. So it's, it's a disembodied reality. Thirdly, your ability to have good and true and beautiful community can suffer. Like I said, I had friends who would be cooped up in their, in their dorm room watching games against just two random D3 school teams who the guy probably didn't know either team before the game started, uh, but had put money on it and was so distracted by that that my friends lost the ability to make those connections with people on their hall or on the campus. And then finally, I think the financial risk points us towards poor stewardship, what God has given us, using it for ways in which that, uh, that may not be the most uh, faithful to our stewardship. We may not be worshiping God with our money in the best way um, when we place a lot of money on sports bets. So I think that also kind of forms us as humans negatively. Gabe, I imagine some of our listeners are listening to this and they're like, man, this describes me or this mm -hmm. describes someone I love. What resources or what places would you lead them to if they feel like this touches a little cl too close to home? Yeah, I think ultimately, first and foremost, getting plugged into the church. That is where true community is. That's where hopefully you're pointed towards good stewardship of your resources, your time and your money, being formed in positive ways, in positive directions rather than negative directions is so counterformative. We're, we're going against what culture or the sports betting culture is, is forming us. And in community, in our local church, we're able to be formed positively. Um, I think there are also resources. Um, there are sports betting or and gambling addiction hotlines and websites that you can go to. And then also, I know the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is uh, attacking this issue along with a bunch of others, but they're also noticing a rise in this uh, to talk about this issue. Awesome, Gabe. Thank you so much for coming on today and talking about this important issue. We appreciate it. Thank you. We're all humans and we all have limits. Are those limits good or bad? And how does our faith inform our thoughts on these questions? Here to discuss today is Dr. Kelly Capick. Dr. Capick is professor of theological studies at Covenant College, where he has taught since 2001. He is the author of a new book called You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. Also joining us today in this conversation is Jordan Stefaniak. Jordan is a Ph.D. student in philosophy at the University of Birmingham. Uh, he's also co-founder of a podcast called The London Lyceum. If you haven't uh, heard it, I highly recommend it. And he is also a research fellow with us here at the Center for Faith and Culture. Jordan, Dr. Capick, thank you for joining us today. 
Uh, good to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm especially excited because, Dr. Kapik, you probably don't know this, but one of the books that we're not going to discuss today that I want to recommend all of you go check out is Your Embodied Hope. So there was a period in my life, I don't know, it's probably been six or seven years where I went through several surgeries in a row, Mm. and it really ministered to me. So for those of you who are hurting and in pain, I definitely Mm. commend this book to you. It was very, very helpful for me. That's very kind. Thanks. So, Dr. I'll pay, Kappig, I'll pay you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cappy, you're talking in your book about the limitations of, I mean, we're, we're finite beings. Yeah. And to hear that it actually may be a good thing to have limits. We, we live in a day in which everyone, everyone wants to upload onto the metaverse mm-hmm. uh, so that they might transcend these limitations. Tell us why these limitations are actually to our benefit and to our good. Yeah, great question. Uh, we could go a lot of ways, but I think the easiest way to get to it is, um, strangely, it's a single word. It's called love. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's, it's a bit counterintuitive, but love is often built into, in terms of creaturely relationships, love is, is fundamental. We need each other. We look to each other. We depend upon one another. But yeah, even that word finitude is a very fancy word. It just means limits of space, time, knowledge, and power, and this kind of endless quest to, or for Christians, I actually think we feel guilty a lot. Like we feel like we should know more. We should be more places. We should do more things. And so from a Christian perspective, I'm actually concerned how that quest for, like you were talking about uploading and always doing more, I think we deal with a lot of confusion between our limits and sin. And so we feel guilty a lot for not being able to do everything, not being able to know everything, not, you know, and we're feeling guilty for being creatures. And we were never meant to be anything other than creatures. So our limits actually can foster really healthy things or meant to foster things like humility and, and other things. But limits are actually meant to be good. They, meant, they, they bind us to God and to one another. I just attended a funeral recently. Uh, it, w- it was the funeral of a believer, absent from the body, present from the Lord. And I really do appreciate many of the things that the minister was saying. He was, he was comforting the family, uh, giving them a hope that their loved one was with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord is a very wonderful thing. But he made it sound as if finally, you know, right. free from these prison bars I have flown. Mm. It, it almost sounded positively Gnostic. Mm. So tell me, why is it good to spend eternity in a body? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so important to remember that the, you're kind of hinting at this, you know, the Christian hope, surprisingly, is not actually the immortality of the soul, just because that can be misunderstood and taken. The Christian hope is the resurrection of the dead, Mm. right? That Christ is risen and we will rise with him. And I guess part of what I try and I want us to remember is that the God of creation is the same as the God of recreation. And we're very firm on, yes, Genesis 1 really matters, but we don't always see the link between Genesis 1 and John 1, right? And, and, and the coming of the Son, the eternal Son of God taking on real flesh and blood, that's because God loves his creation. He loves what he made, and so sin is what distorts his creation. And he loves human creatures, but he doesn't love the sin that distorts and deforms those creatures. So I want us to see the Christian story in terms of it's the same God. We would say, oh, yeah, same God, Old Testament, New Testament. Think through that. Salvation 
is more holistic than we tend to think about. You know? Yes, and and I think bringing up John one one is so important in affirming Jesus's incarnation. Yeah, uh, that, and his body. Yeah, super uh, important. As John says in First John, uh, that which our eyes have seen, mm-hmm. our ears have, and our hands have handled. I always think it's interesting when John one he doesn't just say that the word became anthropos, but the word became sarks, mm-hmm. flesh, almost vulgar. Yeah. The word became guts. In your book, you talk about the importance of the human touch. Why is human touch important? You know, we're in a time now where we are rightly grieving, recognizing some of the sins in the church of mistouch. Priests and pastors and leaders who have used their positions to abuse touch. And we need to address and correct and repent of that. And so there are two, there are two temptations here. One is then to say touch is a bad thing. And, and, and that's what I'd concentrate on because the abuse of touch is a significant thing because we do need touch, because our bodies really do matter. And so in light of all of that that was going on, just reading the Gospels, it's just struck me how often it actually emphasizes Jesus' physical touch of people. And it, it, sometimes it goes with him saying he'll touch and then say, do not fear or do not be afraid or take heart. And it is him affirming us and our bodies. So part of what's interesting in the ancient church that was so interesting is the growth of the early church in the early centuries. You had a ton of women coming. You have a lot of young people. And part of it was culturally women and children had no rights and their bodies were horrendously abused pretty regularly. And the church was a place that greeted people with a holy kiss but would not abuse touch. And it was a revolutionary thing. This is a safe place, not where my body is denied, but my body is honored because the body of my Lord is honored and he is honored body. So anyway, those would be some of the things I'd, I'd want to. Well, as we talk about the, uh, the human body, let's move into the notion of identity. I think one of the things that is definitely a hot button today is what is the relationship of my body to my identity? It seems like we oscillate between two extremes. Either I am merely a physical entity. Um, you know, I don't have a mind. I have a brain. I don't have a soul. I have a body. I am merely that. And then on the other extreme is the idea, uh, yes, I have a soul, but it operates almost like a captain on a ship. I'm a ghost in the machine, and the body is this instrument that I use. You avoid both extremes. How is my identity generated? To what relationship does my uh, body have to my identity? How do we think through those things? These are great and super relevant questions. It's interesting historically, and this, this surprises people, I think, sometimes if they haven't really looked into it. But until, you know, two centuries ago... Um, using generalizations, and to this day around much of the world, if you ask someone, say in 900 AD Europe or China, you you name it, by and large, you ask someone, who are you? They will tell you about the tribe they're from, the land they're from, the names of parents and grandparents. They will talk about the work they do. They will talk about all of these things to explain who they are. In the contemporary Western world, if you ask someone, who are you, we do an internal dive. We think the way you find out who you are is by looking inside. It is constantly like, be who you are, let yourself. And 
Now, the truth is both of those have strengths and weaknesses. You know, one of the problems with the model of finding identity purely from outside of you is, well, what about your distinctive? What about your particular gifts and, you know, those kind of things? That's that's a problem. But in our day, we have so gone internal, it breeds a ton of turbulence. Because the truth is you you feel one thing one day and a different thing. In a, it's, it's constantly changing. And the church at its best holds both of those, right? That we didn't invent ourselves. I, I tell my students, I talk about the importance of of the belly button, the theological significance of the belly button, right? Because you're tempted to want to, when you get irritated with your parents, you're like, I'm not from you. And I'm like, no, no, there's biological connections. We all have DNA and so on. So, So there are these larger networks. The internal matters as well. But ultimately, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, am I what other people think of me? Am I what I think? Those are often in contrast. And then he's like, no, I'm, I'm who God thinks I am. And, and there's something about looking to God for our identity. And I know you've, you've worked on some of this stuff, Jordan, so I'd be curious what you say on, on some of the identity and some of these issues. But trying to think through how do we honor particularity and universality. And the, the one other thing I would just say is I worry a little bit, though, when well-meaning Christians tell people your identity is not that you're an Asian American Christian or that you're – you know, someone with a disability, Christian, or something like, no, 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 you're just in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. And theologically, I agree, your identity is in Christ. But that tends to ignore, we have all these other things that shape us, right? My, my experience in this world, my family, my land, my history, my skin color, those things do matter. And I think we can downplay them, especially when we don't realize how much we're shaped by them. But anyways, going back to identity stuff, to draw you in, I'd be curious what you'd say. Well, I don't want this to be the Jordan show, because that's how long it would take to, <laughs> to parse this all out. I will say one thing for those who are listening. I think it's it's important when we think about identity to understand what sort of identity we're talking about. So there are all different senses yeah. of identity. And then once you carve it out and say, well, I'm trying to talk about like what really defines me, as we've been describing here, it's not a zero-sum game when it comes to that. So just because your identity is in Christ doesn't mean you give up your identity as a father or right, as exactly. a husband or a wife or a mother or a son, those still remain, and they are still important for who you are and how you function in society and how you function in your family. So I do think there is a significant uh, sort of, I don't know, extremism where you fall off on the side, one side or the other, where when we realize, wow, yes, I'm a Christian, that really defines me, that gives me all sorts of new rights, it gives me an inheritance— and that can sometimes lead us to think that nothing else matters. But that's not true. That's not true, yeah. It subverts things, but it, yes. they still very much matter. No, that's, yeah, that's it, excellent. I, I Sometimes whenever I, I read what certain Christians uh, uh, write, I get the impression that they're almost thinking like a Buddhist, that uh, in order for Christ to be Lord, the self must be annihilated. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it just, must just evaporate and disappear. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not that um, death to self means that the self ceases to exist. It means the self is properly ordered. So Christ is at the head. Um, going back to the notion of uh, identity uh, and in, in, in popular culture, so would we say that the way that people are thinking today is that there is this radical self-autonomy mm-hmm. and that, that, that I, I am the captain of my right. faith. Yeah. I am the master of my destiny. Mm. 
you know, whenever I try to look inward, it seems like it's like peeling an onion. After a while, they're just, you know, where, is, where am I? Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, Jordan, I know you've written on uh, identity and gender. I've always wondered uh, if someone says my body is contrary to my identity. Let's talk about someone who's, who has uh, gender dysphoria maybe. Who is the I that is in conflict with their body if they take a purely physicalist understanding of the human person. Uh, you've, you've read more about this and you have interacted. What kind of answer do they give? I, I, would, I would suspect that they're, they're not Cartesian dualist. I mean, from my experience, it, to some degree, it's the, just the result of sin that causes confusion over these sort of issues. I do think there is a serious interesting sort of dichotomy that goes on. If you want to say the body is all that matters and I'm a materialist in the sense that nothing exists over and above these physical parts that I'm made up of, and then you want to say that, well, my body actually is wrong in some particular way. Someone who says I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Or let's say I am am supposed to be 45 right now. I'm not 45. I'm 32. It's what is going on here. And they then explain to me, like, what are you made up of? And they would say, well, there's no real mental or soul that's distinct from the body in any sense. And I would say, well, that seems to be contradictory, but I don't know if someone who says that cares. So for me, you can make intellectual arguments to explain why that might be fundamentally wrong, but there's something deeper there that you have to deal with that seems to be more of a heart issue that's related to sin and and so that's, to me, where I think the gospel is the primary means of explaining and understanding and helping heal that sort of divide. I don't know if you have mm. other thoughts or ideas on that. I think it points to something in all of us. I, I think we all struggle to answer the question, who am I? Mm. And whether you're talking about, you know, I, I know right now it's a hot topic in terms of our physicality and how we relate to our bodies, which I do think is an important topic. But... It is funny, right? We present ourselves, we're like, well, I am this, I am a scholar, or I am this or that. And we're like, (laughs) sometimes we present ourselves in ways that actually don't correspond with quote unquote reality. Mm -hmm. And so I I do think this is not a a struggle among a few. It's all of us, but it's reached certain tensions. There is this tension where in some ways, larger culture, I hate, you know, we'll kind of talk culture. We're all in culture. We all are Enculturated, but th- there are these things pushing, saying your body's all that really matters, and then all of a sudden it's like no, until it doesn't, it, your body doesn't matter at all. Yeah. And I, I just think Christians and non-Christians, this is a live discussion because mm-hmm. people actually don't know. What, we we don't we don't know what we're saying yet. It it is though it is an opportunity to go. Okay, I can see some things I disagree with out there, but what what are ways that this is happening in me? Mm-hmm. What are ways yeah. this is happening in our church where? We actually are living more split lives, and we are saying, you know, I, I had a you know, Christian say basically, she said, I look in the mirror, I don't like my body, I'm like, this is not who I am. Yeah. Well, we do that all the time, right? And, and in that way, that's not about sexuality. It's like, I don't like this image, but don't worry, I have a soul, right? It's getting back mm-hmm. to some of the Buddhist thing or yeah. other things. And so I, I think this is all of us, like, we need a theology of the body where we, we value the bodies God has given to us. Um, we're not, we're not merely material, 
but we're not less than material. Mm -hmm. And trying to work through that is is important. And I want to mention on this topic. So I think a lot of Christians, those who are probably listening to this podcast, there's a tendency when it comes to these hot button issues like gender and sexuality to say, well, look, it's so obvious. I just read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God created male and female. This should be a simple question. But it's actually very complex, and there are lots of emotional, psychological, and all sorts of sociological things that are in playing on this that are causing real questions, real pain, and real hurt. So I would encourage you, if you're a pastor or even, a, or if you're not, to not just pull out the shotgun when it comes to these sort of topics, to, to lay down the arms, to say, come on in, let's, let's hug, let's talk about it. Let's have a cup of coffee, let's think together. And let's, let's find ways to, to heal these sort of uh, questions that we have here. So I would just encourage you, yes, like we want to affirm that there's distinctively, there's male and female, but we should be careful and loving of other people and how we interact with them and deal with these sort of complex theological questions. Because there's all sorts of practicalities that make it very, very difficult. Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting because once you realize that identity is far more socially constructed than people realize— as nervous as that can make people, from a Christian perspective, it can also be beautiful. So uh, one of my colleagues is a sociologist at Covenant where I teach. One of the very first days in his intro to social class, he'll he'll have maybe even the first day, he'll have us, two students come up and he'll say, introduce yourself. And then right before they do, he says, now, I, I need you to introduce yourself, but you can't make reference to any relationship, any other person, you know, any other group. It's just... And they said, well, I love soccer. And like, no, 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 soccer is about this community. You play this and that. And like, da, da, da. And I, well, I like pizza. Well, pizza is this American fight. Anyways, and he does this great job. And all of a sudden, they realize, like, they can't say almost anything, right? And then when he lets them say, okay, now introduce yourself. And, talk, and all of a sudden, they talk about their family, talk about what they love and all. So whether we realize it or not, our understanding of ourselves tend to be socially constructed, that actually is an example of why the local church really matters, exactly. why families really exactly. matter. So rather than just getting angry and all that, like this is where love, embrace, presence, all those things really matter. So we take the sentence, I am, and then fill in the blank, mm-hmm. however you do that. Let's apply that to one of the chapters you wrote mm. on humility. Mm. Uh, in fact, you have an interesting title, Have We Misunderstood Humility? Um so on the whole notion of identity and humility, mm-hmm. what did you mean by that chapter title? Have yeah. we misunderstood it? And how do you answer the question? Yeah, I think as Christians, we have often in the history of church and, and to this day misunderstood it. And the simplest way I know how to explain that is if, if you ask most Christians without prefacing it, you say, hey, why should we be humble? Kind of our quick instinct is to say, well, because we're sinners. And I, I'm, a, I'm a theologian. I believe we're sinners, and I believe the fact that we are sinners can contribute to our humility. But theologically, actually, that's a problem when we build humility on sin. And so we live with the distortions because if we think that the reason we should be humble is built on the foundation of our sinfulness, then we all know we should be humble and we feel like we should grow in humility. So how do you do that? We tend to encourage people to focus on how sinful they are. It tends to breed self-hatred, other kind of distortions. And ironically, even though you're saying how bad you are, you're, you're still focusing on the self in all kinds of ways. So I think the interesting theological question is, before there was sin or fall in the world, were Adam and Eve made to be humble? And I think the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Because they were part of the good of God's design is they were made to depend on God 
made to depend on the other, and made to depend on the earth. And dependence is part of the good of creation. And that's what humility is. Humility is that recognition of dependence. So humility doesn't, it does say, I'm sorry, but it doesn't just say that. Humility says, I don't know. Humility says, not just can you forgive me, but can you help me? Um, and that, that doesn't have to be related to sin. It's the fact that we're a creature, and that's a beautiful thing. And, and then you think about how in the Western world, right, if I say, you know, if you and I are talking, I say, hey, you know, Jordan, that guy's really dependent on a lot of people. <laughs> we don't take that as a compliment in our culture, right? And cre- so think about that. If the word dependence is a negative word for us, even in the church, how do you cultivate Christian spirituality when actually healthy dependence is part of the center of robust Christian spirituality? I'm aware of codependence and, and distorted versions, but we're made to depend on God, neighbor, and the earth. So part of what I'm, I'm recognizing or trying to argue there is humility is actually liberating. And so you want to people think either I either I was born humble or I'm not. No, no, no. You can grow in humility. You learn to celebrate other people. Look for people, look for gifts that God has given. Look for uh, practice gratitude. Uh, constantly praise God for the gifts you see a- around his world. There are, there are positive ways one can cultivate this without just concentrating on what a terrible sinner you are. So if I hear you right, the basis of humility is not just because we're fallen, but because we're finite. Yes, exactly. And so humility doesn't begin in Genesis 3. It begins in Genesis 1. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So you've kind of already answered this question. So then how does this conversation, what does it have to do with the church? Mm. How does the narrative that you're presenting to us, how does that fit in on why we need to be sure. a part of the church? Sure. I mean, in some ways, the church itself, one of the things that we're struggling with, I think, these days is a lack of humility. And so we kind of think we know all the answers. Mm-hmm. And I think Scripture is our authority and trustworthy and sufficient. But that doesn't mean we know all the answers, right, to everything. And I, we would do well to ask more questions. It actually shows curiosity. It shows love. And that's not bad. Because we don't know everything. We're finite creatures. We, we can and do uh, show that kind of humility. But also just the life of the church. We live, you know, we kind of go to a home, to our houses and our little, you know, you know into our garages or whatever. We, you, you can so isolate, you don't need others. And part of what's so attractive to the church, it was in the second century, it is in our day, is the church is this place where it's supposed to be a family, which is pretty radical because there are people who look different, different socioeconomic settings, all that, and all of a sudden it's like, no, we are brothers and sisters, and you are going to be treated with respect here, and I'm going to learn from you. I don't care what degree you have, and you're going to learn from me, and, and you're, I'm going to serve you, and you're going to serve me. That is a radical portrayal of humility that's meant to look like a crucified Lord, right, who serves it up for others. Yeah, and of course our theme uh, for this year on our podcast and at the CFC is about spiritual formation. And, and this is the point where I ask the question, how does this fit into spiritual formation? But it seems like to me you've been answering that question for the last 15 minutes. Well, uh, let's hope so. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think I, – here, here I know we're about to end, so I would say this. Like one of the things I really want Christians to understand – is that the goal of the Christian life is not to make you superhuman. It's to make you truly human. That's it. Because God loves what he made. 
He's not trying. He's not trying to make you superhuman. He likes what he made. He doesn't like the sin that distorts your humanity, that undermines your humanity. And as Christians, he wants us to be true humans who love him, who love neighbor, who honor the earth. We've been talking to Dr. Kelly Capick. Uh, he is the author of the book "You're Only Human: How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News." Dr. Capick, how can our listeners follow your work, and how can where they can they find your materials? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm one of these that uh, I'm not on social media. So uh, if people want me, uh, they can, uh, on my webpage at Covenant College, there's a way to contact me if, if you're interested in having me speak or something. But besides that, Amazon uh, and other stuff. <laughs> Dr. Capic, thank you for being with us. Jordan, thank you. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. Today we have with us our own Dr. Benjamin Quinn. So, Dr. Quinn, what's on your bookshelf right now? One of my top five books of all time. This is one that stays on my bookshelf because I reference it often. I use it in in various classes. Uh, Written by Eugene Peterson. Uh, This is the same Eugene Peterson who authored the Message Bible, which, by the way, sometimes he gets a bad rap for. That's not fair. He wasn't doing that to make it your favorite Bible study Bible. He was writing that to simply put the Bible in our our common vernacular. I find it very helpful pastorally. Um, But my favorite book of his is called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. And in fact, it's one of my top five books of all time. Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. The subtitle is A Conversation in Spiritual Theology. The title comes from, it's a play on a Gerald Manley Hopkins poem where he has this line, Christ plays in 10,000 places, and it's a beautiful, um, a beautiful poem, a beautiful line, and a beautiful sort of leap into this book, this conversation in spiritual theology. And I, wanna, I just want to introduce the text itself. It's, it would take a long time to kind of explain it in depth. If, if you've not read Peterson before, he's incredibly imaginative. One thing I love about Peterson's work is that he challenges your imagination. He pushes you to, to think about things in fresh and new and vivid ways. But he always also presses you deeper into the biblical text. He's not, he's not an overly abstract thinker. He doesn't write to the academics. Um, he writes to the thoughtful, ordinary, everyday Christian, layperson, Christian leader, whatever the case is. And one of my—I'll just read a couple of lines here. The, the way that he outlines this book is he takes this Christ plays idea or metaphor, and he breaks the book into three different parts— And the first is that Christ plays in creation. And so he'll walk through uh, exploring the neighborhood of creation. He'll talk about the birth of Jesus and the threat to this being something like Gnosticism, whether that's ancient Gnosticism or even modern-day Gnosticism. The second is that Christ plays in history. And so he'll talk about exploring the neighborhood of history. And I want to—that may sound terribly boring, except for the fact that his whole point— is that, that God has created a world of space and time and that he, by his grace, condescended to, in, to sort of penetrate that world in the person of his son and has acted out the greatest story ever told in real time and space. So that's, what, that's part of what Peterson's getting at in Christ Plays in History. And then that Christ plays in community, exploring the neighborhood of community. And throughout this text, he'll, he'll talk about things like what it means to consider work and vocation carefully. He'll talk about things like how do we consider our places as sacred places. He'll, consi- he'll talk about the rhythm of time, um, how we think about our calendars more carefully. In fact, I'll just read a couple of short sections here. He says, my intent 
is not primarily to explain anything or hand out information, but to enlist your play. My friends and neighbors, my family and congregation, my readers and students, to enlist your play in the play of Christ. And then he'll say as well, um, he says, Spiritual theology is not one more area of theology that takes its place on the shelf alongside the academic disciplines. Rather, it represents the conviction that all theology, no exceptions, has to do with the living God who creates us as living creatures to live to his glory. That's just one of the many gems throughout this, this book that I strongly recommend. You can read it directly in hand. You can read it on Kindle. You can listen to it on Audible. Christ Plays in 10,000 Places by Eugene Peterson. I, I like Peterson's definition of discipleship. It's a long obedience in one direction. Yeah, which surprisingly is a Nietzsche quote, but nevertheless, it's, it's <laughs> he, very he steals this from Nietzsche, long obedience in the same direction, and that's one of also one of his titles. In fact, this, um, this book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, the subtext is a conversation in spiritual theology, and he actually wrote five books that are part of this conversation. Christ plays is the first, and then also eat the, a book called Eat, eat this, this Book, book. which yeah. is kind of a it's kind of a hermeneutics text, but it's a uh, it's a it's a good thick way of thinking about it. Another one of my favorites is just called The Jesus Way, a conversation on the ways that Jesus is the way. Uh, another is called Tell It Slant, a conversation on the language of Jesus in his stories and prayers, and then finally Practice Resurrection, a conversation on growing up in Christ. So that entire sort of quintet. Is, is really fantastic. Thank you for those recommendations about Eugene Peterson. And everyone, thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you've enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Have a great day. <laughs>